And when Bitcoin drops 80 plus percent, they're going to be buying essentially to bring that allocation back up. It's just way easier to do all of that in the ETF wrapper. It basically, I think of it as a bridge to the to the Bitcoin rail. It's the widest, most efficient bridge you can create between TradFi and Bitcoin, as far as I'm concerned. Basically, what we've seen so far is eight to nine of these things have been extreme successes, like very successful in the ETF world. So that's why I'm like looking at people saying this was a flop and nothing happened and this was a loss for these issuers. Well, it's very possible that all 10 of these don't close for the next like three years. We have 10 of these still in, in three years. So all you need to know is that ETFs are like, you can think about them like a, a solar system, essentially. They're like almost like a snowball rolling downhill as they get volume, as they get assets, it helps them to get more volume and get more assets theoretically. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal family or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week, I have on James Safer. James, welcome. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Happy to chat. Let's of get course. into it. Yeah, glad to have you here. Can you share a little bit about your background and how you started working at Bloomberg, especially in relation to Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ETF, of course? Um, yeah, so I started at Bloomberg. So do you want my full back? You want my Bitcoin background or my full background or you want both? Let's do both. All right. So I'll start with my professional background and then I'll explain. I'll go and stop at some point and go back to Bitcoin. So uh, I started at Bloomberg. I interned out of college before that. I worked at a hedge fund of funds as an intern. Um, so, um, I started right out of college, went through a training program. I had known I wanted to be in funds and ETFs, like I said, cause I had worked at a hedge fund the summer prior. Um, and then that or two summers prior, and then I did some projects on ETFs and like, this is what I wanted to do. So I pushed really hard to get under that team and ultimately did thankfully. Um, so I spent three plus years on the back end working in data for Bloomberg. So dealing with issuers, custodians, administrators, like really knowing the back end in the weeds nitty gritty type stuff that most people don't deal with. Um, and so it's a lot of, it's a lot of, you don't, you don't get a lot of love for that type of stuff, but it's really helped me in my current role, which after a few years of that, I moved over to Bloomberg Intelligence, which is Bloomberg's research arm. Um, so that is where we, our research is available to any terminal client, Bloomberg terminal client. Um, and we cover the entire asset management industry, uh, primarily focused on ETFs. That's where our specialties lie, but we cover mutual funds, ETFs, really any sort of asset management you can think of. Um, when I first joined, um, I was split between two things. So I came over as what's referred to as an associate. And basically I reported to two people, Eric Bautunas, who probably many people on here know who that is. Uh, he covered, he's, he's my boss. Um, he's the ETF, senior ETF analyst. And I reported to also, I split my time with Mike McGlone, who's our senior commodity strategist, which some people might also know. He covers crypto from a commodity strategy point of view. Um, and so right after I joined, it was like, I was literally a month in. He was like, do you know anything about Bitcoin? Like, well, we should probably start covering this from a commodity point of view. And I was like, oh, do I? Um, so this, I'll take a step back here and explain how I got involved in Bitcoin. My first experience with Bitcoin is a lot, lot like everyone else's. Like your first experience, you like poo-poo it. It's like, this is, at least most people I talk to, it's like, God, ah, this doesn't matter. And that was in 2011, spring of 2011, my freshman year of college. Um, my sweet mate downloaded Bitcoin mining software on my laptop because he wanted to use it on the Silk Road. And I was just like, your internet money, whatever, I don't care. You can use my laptop. It's not going to do anything. And ultimately, like a couple of days later, 
I'm convinced that it was the Bitcoin mining software that completely trashed my computer. <laughs> I lost my hard drive. My hard drive got corrupted. I lost a bunch of papers and work. So I hated Bitcoin. I was like, that thing is so stupid. It ruined my computer for a long time. And then, um, so while I was in data at that other role, I went to a conference in Chicago with Morningstar and Kathy Wood was there and she shared her white paper that they had just written about Bitcoin and why they were huge believers in it. And that's when I first started really getting orange pilled. I got a physical copy of the white paper. I took it home, started doing my own research, read the Bitcoin white paper. And I was like, okay, I actually have interest here. And I bought some of my first Bitcoin in into early 2017. Um, and obviously anyone listening knows what happened in 2017. And that's when I eventually, so through the summer, it really started picking up steam. I had a bunch of colleagues who were very interested in the space. Um, and then Mike McGlone, who I just mentioned, was like, what do you know? And I was like, well, I've been looking at this for a little over a year now. So here we go. And we started covering it from that perspective. Uh, but ultimately, I got promoted to being a full-time analyst myself, uh, primarily on the ETF side. But that meant that the crypto funds, the Grayscale's trusts of the world, the international uh, crypto ETFs, Bitcoin ETFs, Ethereum ETFs, you name it, um, fell squarely in my wheelhouse. Like two Venn diagrams of where I had built up expertise were overlapping and that's where we sit today. And I've been covering this stuff since 2017, really, is what it comes down to, even though most people didn't really know who I was to start following me until uh, the last year or so. But that's okay. Yeah, no, that's a great background story. When you started full time in, in 2017, did you think that the that a Bitcoin ETF would get approved before 2024? Or did, or did you think that this was going to be a long process? So in 2017, I thought we'd have one within the next two to three years, for sure. Like I the the Winklevoss twins applied in was it 2013? Um, looking at that stuff, at, even in 2017, I was like, I know why they're trying, but they're, this this is not going to get through the SEC's requirements. Um, but I thought for the most part things had been settled in 2020 and 2021, and the SEC just kept denying. Um, we had been since 2018, we had been saying the SEC, but our base case, uh, Eric and I's, has always been like the SEC should just trust the ETF industry. And these traders who make up this industry more than they distrust the crypto and Bitcoin industry because they will clean things up. They're not going to get they're not going to get scammed. They're not going to get like these things are not going to happen to these big players for the most part. Um, and they'll be like brings a little bit of adults into the room, which I know goes against the ethos. But so Eric actually said that in a presentation to the SEC a couple of years ago, basically point blank said, trust the ETF industry and the ETF wrapper more than you distrust Bitcoin and stop not allowing these things. Basically, as far as I'm concerned. Gensler and the S really was Gensler and the Democratic Party um, poli for political reasons just weren't approving this. I think it was ready to go in 2021 as far as I'm concerned. Um, we don't need to go too much down that rabbit hole if we don't want to. But uh, yeah, I, I thought for sure we'd have it. Uh, but even still, even in 2021, I when we were covering this, the, the Grayscale most recent denial, like I was saying leading up to it, this is going to be denial. Grayscale is likely going to sue them. Um, so we got all of our calls correct for the most part. Um, our odds never went higher than 50% really um, for these Bitcoin ETFs to be approved. Um, so we didn't do that until 2024 when we was really when we went above 50%. We had it higher close to like 40% at times. And then after seeing some of the denial letters and what Gary was likely to do, we had, we had percents down near 1% initially at the beginning of 2020, uh, 2023. Um, so obviously things change, BlackRock, uh, the Grayscale court case, all that stuff, um, help things along. Yeah. I kind of do want to, if you don't mind, like dive into why you think the ETF was denied for so long. Like you mentioned, po potentially political reasons, like, can you maybe expand on some of your thoughts there? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at the SEC's arguments, they have some basis for denying up through 2021 for the most part, even potentially. Um, the argument they've always said is they want a regulated market of significant size and they want surveillance of that regulated market. Issuers had been arguing for a long time that this wasn't required for any other commodity asset ETF, uh, which is true. Um, but the SEC was demanding it. And then they also, but the issuers were pointing to you'll allow gold ETFs and all these other ETFs. There's no regulated spot market to analyze this and surveil. The futures market has been enough. Um, and they approved the Bitcoin futures ETFs, which was uh, kind of like the, I, I like to think that Gensler was knew what domino he was, he was kicking over when he basically in August of 2021, he, he gave a speech that basically told issuers if you apply for Bitcoin futures ETFs using CME futures, which are regulated by the CFTC under the 1940 Act, we look forward to those applications. It's basically like, here's the outline. This is the playbook. If you want to get these things approved, this is what you got to do. And that was the domino that knocked everything over to a point where we're now we have spot Bitcoin ETFs. So I think Gensler kind of knew what he was doing at that time and knew what the ultimate line was going to be. Um, but he's, for political reasons, he's been pushing back against it. So um, Gensler is very close uh, with the left wing and the Democratic Party, particularly Elizabeth Warren. Um, there's a lot of political things we can go into there. But for the most part, uh, Biden has Elizabeth Warren has a lot of control over who's running these agencies, the CFTC, not CFTC, SEC, uh, FDIC, things like that. Elizabeth Warren used her, her basically crowd to uh, join up with Joe Biden. And basically, it seems from what I've heard that uh, Joe Biden has basically allowed her to control the nomination of who's running these agencies. So she has a lot of power over this. Um, and so Gensler reports into her. Uh, so for the most part, for political reasons, Gensler is going to basically fight everything he can to the nail to allow these things. And even if you look at his letter after he approved them, he said he doesn't believe in this asset class, uh, all these different things. Uh, and he was kind of his, the courts essentially forced his hand. For a lot of the reasons that the ETF issuers have been saying for four years now, the the futures market should be enough. It's been enough for every other commodity asset class that you've approved. Um, and Hester Peirce even internally has been saying we're creating all these new rules and hurdles, uh, higher and higher hurdles for Bitcoin that we've never created for anything else, uh, which is true. That's that's what's happened over the last few years. Fascinating. Do you think going into you know a presidential election this year, if Bitcoin ends up going on you know? pretty significant bull run, or maybe it's not this election, but another election, will it play a bigger role in the elections? I don't know. Um, right now, it's mostly, it seems to be a lot, largely a nice industry. But I mean, Trump came out after Vivek and basically said he won't allow a CBDC while he's president. Um, so it's kind of there. It's on the fringes. Obviously, I've I know many people in the industry who are basically single issue voters. Like I've talked to people who are like as liberal as they come and they're like, I'm not going to vote for Biden just because of what he's doing um, and his administration is trying to do to the to the industry. So I don't know. I, I, I it's but again, it's a it's a relatively small populace and I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not an election analyst. So I think it will come up, but I think it'll be very minor uh, unless I don't know, Trump tries to make it something bigger because right now it's just going to be Trump versus Biden. Um, which I don't think really anyone wants, but <laughs> here we are, two octogenarians virtually trying to be our presidents is not a good look in my pew, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, so let's go back to the Bitcoin ETF in particular. I'm curious from your perspective, do you think people should hold Bitcoin like with their own private keys or do you think big people should just hold the ETF? Um, 
obviously not your keys, not your coins. Um, that said, there's just some people out there that are never like with the way UX is the user interface is right now. Um, it's there's just people that like my parents. They they have a hard time figuring out the remote sometimes when they're flipping from like the smart TV to cable and stuff. Like they are not going to be sending transactions on chain. So this maybe at some point if the UX and UI gets better, um, what have you, yes. But for the most part, some people, particularly if you're an advisor, which we can get into a little bit, but like if you're somebody who's looking at this and thinking, I want to put some of my my net worth into this thing, whether it's a two percent allocation or a five percent allocation which is what most of these ETS will be used for, those types of people. There will obviously be traders and I'm sure people will have larger allocations of their net worth. But for the most part, that's what it's going to be used for, one, two, five percent of their net worth. Like if you're an advisor managing that, you don't want to maintain your client's keys. If you're a client, it's way easier to have your advisor just take care of it on the traditional financial rails. They can rebalance for you. So when Bitcoin rips up 80 to 100%, you'll, they, they'll sell to keep that allocation goal they have. And when Bitcoin drops 80 plus percent, they're going to be buying essentially to bring that allocation back up. Um, so it's just way easier to do all of that in the ETF wrapper. It basically, I think of it as a bridge to the to the Bitcoin rail. Um, it's just a, it's a really it's the most it's the widest, most efficient bridge you can create between TradFi and Bitcoin, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that said, let the like overall my view is just let the market decide right like this is not breaking anything with bitcoin it kind of goes against the ethos yes but if people want to use this and it, you can think of it as like um it's almost like dipping your toe in the water and some people might end up jumping full on into the water and not using the etfs who ha who who knows but also there's a lot of things obviously there are ways to open iras to own bitcoin and tax deferred accounts like swan has it i know on ramp and some other people have like created things where you can own bitcoin in a tax deferred account like an ira but many people already have an IRA with with somebody like a Schwab or Fidelity, you name it. And like it's not an easy way right now, or there hasn't been in years, to just like use the money that's already in there and buy Bitcoin. So this that's what a lot of GPC's assets have been in the past because it was the easiest way to get exposure in a tax deferred type vehicle. And I think that's even people that have most of their Bitcoin held in cold wallets. I've talked to true like Bitcoin maxis that are like, yeah, I have a 401k or I have an IRA that I rolled over and like I'm using the ETFs because that's where I want to have it. But I also have my own ledger or you name it where I have it stored in, in uh, I have it in cold storage with my own keys. So I think there's multiple use cases here. The other thing that we didn't really touch on is these things are so efficient to trade. Like you see all these crypto exchanges talking about taker and maker fees and all these things and the spreads. Look, these things are trading like 0.00% like 0, 0.00 something percent on the bid ask spread basis. There is no maker or taker fees for the most part. If you're on an, on an exchange, you have to pay no commissions. Um, like if you are trading these things, it is a super efficient way to trade exposure to Bitcoin. So not even just for long-term holders, even for traders, this is efficient. Obviously the problem here is like, if you're really in the weeds on the crypto and DeFi side of things, like you're not going to be trading against like you can't go into these other altcoins, which we don't, <laughs> I'm not like a, a shit coiner at all, but for the most part, there's a lot of like hedge funds out there that are obviously going to have to stay on these crypto specific exchanges. But people who want to trade exposure and get exposure to Bitcoin, these things are the best thing available. Um, they are the best product. They are the best wrapper. They are cheap. They are efficient. Um, and honestly, they're safer. I mean, you're not going to have an FTX situation in these things, right? That I, I know, I know it's not your keys, not your coins, but like, for the most part, if you're an end retail investor, 
and the, this is one of the reasons why we had such a problem with the SEC's denial. GBTC was a borderline broken product. And I don't blame Grayscale. They've got this product out there. It helped a lot of people get exposure to Bitcoin in those tax deferred um, accounts like I was talking about. Um, but it was such an inefficient way to get exposure. And then you had people getting ripped off on things like FTX, losing their money on BlockFi and Voyager and three hours, three hours capital, Genesis, you name it. Like all of those things, they're not going to happen with a full reserve spot Bitcoin ETF. The Unchained IRA is continuing to break new records. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. Now back to the show. I definitely agree that the spot Bitcoin ETF is a net positive for the ecosystem overall. I also kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this. I kind of view it as top of funnel for like becoming like more deep, deeply involved with Bitcoin. Like when I first got into Bitcoin, I was, I'm sure you did like you, you know, trusted a random exchange, maybe in Coinbase or whatnot. You didn't really know what you were doing. Eventually you may yeah. have, you know, taken some off the exchange, learned about, you know, what private keys are, how to hold it yourself and the benefits of that. But at the end of the day, you got to start somewhere. And a lot of people just come for number go up technology and the ETF is a good way to, to, to start with that. Yeah. I mean, it's a gateway drug. Uh, yeah. You could think of the ETFs as a gateway drug. I talk about them as a bridge, but they're also a gateway drug. And many, many, many people that touch these ETFs are never going to really go fully down and get their own coins. Um, but like also people, there's plenty of people that want exposure to this and they view it as a digital store of value, digital gold, you name it. Um, and like I said, it's only going to be a small portion of their portfolio. And if they see what is this thing that's holding my portfolio up right now, they're going to do more due diligence, more research and, and get in there. But even if they don't, it's still something that it's just going to become, it's becoming more normalized by the SEC approving this um, by a lot of these platforms, these big asset managers. You have BlackRock, Fidelity, um, Invesco, some of the largest asset managers in the world putting their weight behind these things right now. Um, and that is that, that, that can't be overstated as far as I'm concerned. For the most part, anyone out there, there's a lot of them out there that are saying the Bitcoin ETFs were flop. They're either Bitcoin maxis or crypto people that hate Bitcoin. Um, and they're, they, their expectations were either way too high or just no matter what they did, they wouldn't have met their expectations. For the most part, people saying these things were flop, like they just don't like cryptocurrency or Bitcoin in general, right? That, that's what we find. For the most part, anyone telling us these things were going to get denied, the SEC was never going to prove them. You go back, look at their tweets, look at anything they've written. And they just hate the space, which is fair. Like if you hate crypto, if you hate Bitcoin, you hate things that stands for, you don't like the fraud and manipulation you've seen in the industry, that's fine. But people like have a very hard time taking a step back and being like, look, here are the facts. And this is likely what's going to happen, why people are going to use this, why this probably isn't going to die. But there's there's people are so polarized and have made up their minds in, in many cases. Um, but we'll, we'll see long term where, where this ends up with the with these Bitcoin ETFs, though. Yeah, you brought up the the point earlier about advisors enabling their clients to reallocate their portfolios as Bitcoin goes up a lot. They sell some as Bitcoin goes down a lot. They buy more. Do you think that now that the ETF is around and we have more and like people in the space that are rebalancing their portfolios like that, do you think that Bitcoin's volatility will decrease over time? You do. Yeah, I've been saying for months now that I expect. Give, give it more time to, for the ETFs to really pick up steam and get more assets uh, for these flows out of GBTC to settle down a bit more and flows in, obviously, I think will settle down too. 
Um, but ultimately, I think these ETFs, particularly if they get to hundreds, like tens of billions of dollars in assets, we're around 30 right now. That process of these people who have set allocation goals, that will dampen the volatility. Because like I said before, they'll be selling into rallies, which will probably cap a little bit of the momentum on the upside and potentially, but they'll also be buying into dips. And this is physical spot Bitcoin exposure. This is not derivative paper Bitcoin, you name it, whatever people wants to say. They need to have the Bitcoin in those cold wallets at the end of the day, or the fund is going to suffer. Look, these issuers, their job is to track the underlying spot Bitcoin. So if they don't have exposure to Bitcoin and their underlying assets are not keeping up with the price of Bitcoin itself, what have you, because they didn't get good um, they didn't get efficient trades in to get the Bitcoin exposure. They didn't do X, Y, or Z, or they were late in getting the exposure and they were stuck in cash for longer than they wanted to at a bigger portion of the fund. No issuer wants to deal with that. They want to hold the Bitcoin. They want to track the Bitcoin and they just want to earn that percent, the, the expense ratio that they're charging. And that's how they make their money. A lot of people have questions also about like the traders and like they're going to manipulate all this stuff. Look, the traders are going to try to make, make these markets. They're going to create shares and destroy shares to the ETFs. The money they make is on the difference of those bid-ass spreads I was talking about. They are not here to go long or short and go 100x up or down. Bitcoin, they are there. They have a very good business model where they trade millions of millions of assets, right? Or at least thousands and thousands of assets. And they make money in that little bit. They're offering to buy it for $99.99. And they're offering to sell it for $100.01. And that two-cent spread, whatever it may be, that's where these trading firms make their money. They're not out there like going 100% long. Like there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, but I'll start, we're going down a different rabbit hole. But like, that's something that's one of my pet peeves that I hear people talking about. These issuers are going to manipulate things and these market makers are going to be doing all this weird wonky stuff. Like, no, that they have set goals of how they want to make their money. Um, and if they go apart from that, it's going to be a problem for them and their businesses. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, how do you think about, on that topic of volatility, like how do you think about valuing Bitcoin? Like it doesn't have future cash flows. It's just kind of a, you know, a digital commodity. How do you how do you think about that? Yeah. So this is not my expertise, right? I have my own way of viewing this. And like if anyone wants to date me on topics on the ETF and how the ETF wrapper works and what's going to happen with ETFs, like that is my expertise, right? Like I I can go toe-to-toe with pretty much anyone if you want to talk about that stuff. On this front, I'm not going to pretend to be like I'm some knowledgeable person. The way I have always talked about it with, with particularly Bloomberg clients, institutional type investors, um, anyone really, since 2017, 20, 2018 really is when I first started doing it. I viewed Bitcoin as uh, the payoff structure as like a call option on a store value asset. I viewed the upside being very high potentially and the downside being like it's just like buying a call option that expires worthless potentially, even if Bitcoin goes to zero. So that's how I was describing it back in 2018. Um, now with the massive run-up we've seen, it's not exactly the same. Um, but still, like that's the kind of the way that I view it. I don't know how to value Bitcoin. Um, it's a it's a hard asset capped at 21 million. There's also a bunch of coins that have been lost. Um, I view it more from a historical perspective, and I tend to view it in the broader allocation of a portfolio. I'm not one of these people that holds 100% of my assets in Bitcoin. I, I know they're out there. Um, I'm one of these people that still believes in really like, an, it's 60-40, it's 60% equities, 40% bonds. That's what most people's allocations are, particularly as you get old in life. Younger people tend to be 80-20, 80, 80 equity, 20 bonds. I probably am 90, 95-5 right now in my life. I actually know because if I include my money markets or cash, it's probably more like 85, 15, 90, 10, whatever. It doesn't matter. 
I also hold Bitcoin and I view Bitcoin as if you look historically what Bitcoin does to these portfolios because of its volatility, because of its uncorrelated nature over the past few years, which granted at times has gotten very correlated to the equity markets because it is, I still view it as a risk asset. Um, I just think like what it does to a portfolio uh, risk adjusted returns. So basically how much return you get and what does it do to the risk of the overlying underlying portfolio? So basically if you can get a lot of return with little risk or actually you increase your return and de decrease your risk, which is what Bitcoin does to these types of portfolios and the 2%, 5%, even 10, 15, 20% allocation, no matter how you slice it, it increases that ratio of like you get more return and you lower the risk of the overall portfolio because it's so uncorrelated. So historically, obviously, um, past, <laughs> past returns are not indicative of future performance. Um, but still, like for the most part, if you look over any rolling period, Bitcoin increases the sharp ratio uh, over any significant period of time, particularly if you go out to like a four year time frame. Uh, so a halving cycle. Um, so like that's the way I view it. I view it as a good diversifier and alternative asset class. We talk about these 60, 40 portfolios and a lot of people in the traditional media and traditional fund coverage are like all these theme ETFs where they're investing in like solar panels or specifically looking at AI. They're like, these are bad ETFs. And they they'd have net, net bad performance. You're better off buying a, a large cap stock or a whole market portfolio that is passive. It just grows up slowly over time. What people don't realize is there's also like this core satellite type approach, or we call it hot sauce a little bit. Having more exciting things in your portfolio that you can talk about, we call it, it also refers to as conversational alpha. Like if you're investing in these things, yeah, 80% of my net worth is in, or my investable net worth is in these things that are super solid, go up consistently over time in history. But I like to also like make bets in these thematic ETFs or a couple of single stocks here and there, or an asset like gold or Bitcoin, what have you. That like, basically, I can leave that part of my portfolio alone to compound very strongly over the long term. You're betting on the US economy. You're betting on people going to work every day. There are cash flows. It is solid. And if you just, every history, no matter, you go back hundreds of years, you show that if you invest in that type of place, over, over the very long term, you do very well. So the more you can leave that alone, the better off you are. So when you have also this hot sauce side of things that keeps people interested, which Bitcoin, I believe, will fall into there for many people. It allows them to kind of leave the huge chunk of their portfolio where their net worth should be, in my view, to sit and compound long term. And then also you can do these other things at the end that tend to be a little more spicy, a little more fun, a little more volatile. And doing that keeps you like uh, keeps your finger off the trigger of your of your primary portfolio, because people don't realize like, I don't know, I, I don't know about you, but like I would if I could, I would probably be trading a lot more than I am. I'm not allowed to trade in my current role. But like it, it, by trading even just a small portion of your portfolio, it allows you to keep your hands off the stuff. And all the research says that the less trading you do, the better off you are, because then you're just giving money to Wall Street, essentially. I agree with that last part for sure. <laughs> um, what did you think about like the you know, week of the ETF approval? Like we had the SEC account <laughs> Twitter get hacked. We, I think even the day of we had a like the PDF approval document leaked on their website and then they took it down. What did you think about all of that? Yeah. Uh, so the hacked account was bad. So I, I saw it and I waited a minute. I was like, this can't, they would not have released it this way. And then I was like, well, why would I have gotten the alert? Because I had that account set up for tweet alerts. And I was like, I got the alert. And I went to the site. I was like, this is the confirmed site. This is where they tweet all the stuff. It looks like an official tweet. Um, so I, I tweeted out, but I will say, I, I did caveat with, this is not how they normally do this. So this is strange, but this, this is the official SEC account. And sure enough, it came back. Um, just no 2FA kind of whatever. 
it is what it is. Um, I, I was afraid they were going to try to use that in some negative way. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the PDF. Yeah, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't think they were paying attention to the fact that like asset managers, traders, people on Twitter, like they were getting access to these PDFs before they were. So like they were loading them onto like the back end of the website before they put them on the front end where anyone could just go up and load it. And people have all these sniffers looking for anything that's dropped into the site. So all of a sudden I follow a bunch of accounts that do this type of stuff. And we have our own sniffers as well at Bloomberg. And I'm like, no, this is real. So part of the problem, it was funny because Bloomberg News and other news agencies wrote that it was approved on the Twitter and then they had to walk it back. So then when the file dropped, they were like, we need to make sure this is real. And I was like, I'm telling you this is real. Like I was talking to people in news. I'm like, this is the approval. If somebody faked this, whatever, 50, 60, I don't remember how big it was. It was a massive document. I'm like, this is a real approval. Like they approved them. And they're like, well, we need to see it. And then I was like, here it is. And then it was down. But luckily I downloaded it and I sent them the PDF. I'm like, this is the real approval. Somebody just screwed up. They didn't realize that we have, have people would be able to find on the back end. Sure enough, they ultimately loaded it a little bit later. But like, yeah, news agencies across like basically the US didn't cover it. Like uh, Twitter was the first place to break the news because uh, news agencies were afraid to pull the trigger in the in the event that they were wrong again. So I don't even think Bloomberg wrote any breaking news about the ETF being approved that day because they had just done it the day before. Wrong. Yeah, I kind of had the same reaction. I remember the Twitter account posting and I was like, this doesn't they they announced it on Twitter. Like, I mean, the world is changing, but I don't know. It seems a little, a little sketchy. And then the PDF, I was like, OK, this got to be real unless someone literally hacked into their you know website and domain name and put a file up, which I was like, I don't know. That would be really bad if someone hacked their Twitter account and their website, too. <laughs> Yeah. Like I, I know from some people, like I talked to people looking back and they were like, I wish I didn't tweet that. I should have been more cautious. But I look back at my tweets that and like the coin telegraph tweet, I was one of the first people to be like, this is BS. Like I, I put it out there. I was like, so I'm, I, I'm going to tune my own. I, I've been pretty good on these things, like getting it right within a few minutes or, or like caveating, like this looks a little weird, but this is, this is definitely the SEC stuff. So I hope that continues going forward with any other head fakes or things that happen. But so far I've been lucky enough to to be accurate and timely on, on these moving things. So knock on wood, but yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Have you, have there been any other surprises since the approval, like whether it's with flows or with certain ETFs being leaders compared to other ETFs? What are, have there been any surprises for you? Um, one. So I bit the last few days has traded more than GBTC. I did not. I thought I could overtake GBTC in trading volume as the liquidity crown, getting the liquidity crown. Um, but I didn't think it would happen this fast. Usually it takes a lot longer for something like that to happen. Um, the flows out of GBTC, a couple months ago, I guessed that they would lose 25% of their shares. They're currently just like right around that, a little bit below 25%. Um, but that was before I knew they were going to keep their fee at 1.5. So their flows out of GBC have been a little higher than I expected initially. That said, I knew there was billions and billions of dollars in bankruptcy estates uh, I knew there was going, I, I wrote reports that saying expect billions and billions to flow out of GBTC for a multitude of reasons. One, um, just people wanting to get out, people that were buying it solely to bet on the ETF approval, not because they want exposure to Bitcoin. Traders basically arbing that discount. GBTC was trading at a massive discount. And then you had the bankruptcy states, which you talk FTX, who else, who knows who else held that thing and was just waiting to get out of it because uh, they needed capital and they just didn't want to sell at a 15, 20, 50% discount. Um, so I knew, we knew money was going to come out, but more has come out than I thought that said more has gone into these other ones than I mostly expected it's continued. Um, so those are the main surprises. 
I guess I'm also bit, Bitwise did better than I expected. Bitwise, it goes right now. It's GBC has that outflows every day. Um, IBIT from BlackRock and FBTC from Fidelity have infl have had inflows every single day. And then third place in the new nine, newborn nine is Arc. Arc and Twenty One Shares is Arc B. They've taken in flows every single day aside from one since launch. And same with Bitwise. Uh, so Bitwise is doing well. Um, I would have guessed that Invesco would have been a little bit higher, uh, who's partnered with Galaxy, um, but they're also still doing well. I mean, basically what we've seen so far is eight to nine of these things have been extreme successes, like very successful in the ETF world. So that's why I'm like looking at people saying this was a flop and nothing happened and this was a loss for these issuers. Well, it's very possible that all 10 of these don't close for the next like three years. We have 10 of these still in, in three years. So uh, people were like, oh, I think we're going to have less than five ETFs in a year from now. No way they can all survive. But we have almost all of them. So we have, what is it? Yeah. So Valkyrie, Vanek, Invesco, Bitwise, Arc, Fidelity, iShares, and Grayscale are all over 100 million in assets. Franklin's ETF is at 73 million in assets, for which is, they're not likely never going to close that. That's a good, that's a healthy chunk of assets. And then at the bottom, you have Wisdom Trees, BTCW, just at 18 million in assets, but they've been taking in like a million dollars, a little less than a million dollars, like every day. So they're growing slowly. Their spreads are super tight. It's trading well. Um, so I don't think that's going to close either. So this has been like every single one of these issuers is probably relatively happy for the most part with how things have gone. I'm sure they, no matter what they would have said, they would have liked different things to go better. But for the most part, they're all doing pretty well. What do you think's the end game with GBTC? Like you, I think you said, twenty five percent of the fund has has left at this point. Will it stop at fifty? Will it eventually just go to zero? How do you think about that? Yeah, my guess is uh, around a third will be gone in the near term. Now, maybe more. Um, the problem is there's a lot of money that's in there that's that's rather sticky. Um, I wonder if they'll cut fees a little bit more to stop some of the hemorrhaging. The problem is if they've been used to getting a 2% fee. So let's say this, so this was a $30 billion fund, but we'll just use 10 billion to keep it as a round number. Um, so it's easier to understand the math or thinking behind this. If you're a grayscale, you have 10 billion in assets, you're used to getting a 2% fee per year. That's $200 million. Yeah, $200 million. So you're used to getting $200 million every single year. And then all of a sudden, all these people come out, they're doing 0%. So you could go to zero if you do a waiver. Or if you compete, you go to 20 BIPs that's only two, $20 million a year, right? So like, do you really want to go from 200 down to 20? If like, if you get used to making uh, $200,000 a year and then you have to make $20,000 a year, like that is a hard thing to, to stomach. So the math was probably something like one, I bet I can guarantee you some of the people in from the ETF world knew that going 1.5 wouldn't be great. But the math, I mean, you have DCG that has a lot of these bankruptcy troubles. Um, there's, you name it, there's a lot of things going on. Um, but so you're looking at if you cut and be competitive on price, all of a sudden you're cutting your 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 revenue down by 90%. So the math was like, all right, we'll cut our fee by 25% to 1.5% and just hope that the outflows that we see, we know we're going to see billions in the first couple of weeks, no matter what we do. Let's hope the subsequent outflows are still less than what would come out if we, what we would lose if we cut down to 20 bips. Like it's highly likely that GBTC, even if it continues seeing outflows at this rate in in perpetuity, is going to see they've already seen more money, more revenue come into that their product than likely all the other nine ETFs combined will see for the entire year. So, like that was probably the calculus. Um, 
I don't know how it's going to play out. I think they thought they could hold the liquidity crown a little bit longer, but it looks like iBit is taking it from them the last few days, which is not a good sign. That said, people are also underestimating how sticky some of these assets are. People don't want to pay a 15 to 20% long-term capital gains rate to get out of these things. People definitely don't want to pay a, a short-term cap gains rate. So I think there are people in here that are stuck and waiting until their short-term cap gains rate can turn to a long-term cap gain and they'll sell then potentially too. Um, because the math goes like, do I want to sell at like, whatever, if I'm in the 30 something percent tax bracket, or I can just sit and eat, lose 1.5% per year. And then ultimately when it gets a short-term gain, I'll sell, or maybe you just decide that I, I'd rather sit and lose 1.5% a year than, than deal with the cap gains on these things. So who knows exactly how it will play out. Um, but they'll be around They're They're a big player in the space. Uh, they have a really good team there. Um, I think they should have cut the fee more than they did, but I'm not in the room when making that decision. There might be stuff that went into it that we don't know. We don't know what they're paying their custodians. We don't know what their contract said. It's possible they were stuck paying higher percentage fees to, to some of these people because they've been around since 2015. And back in 2015, custodian fees were probably like near 1%. Um, so who knows what they're, they're paying now, but um, I'm sure it was an easy decision for them, but we can honestly... We can thank Grayscale for the spot Bitcoin ETS. Without them going to court and beating the SEC, we probably wouldn't have them right now. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that I'm sure there's a lot of people that are sitting on GBDC with long-term, massive long-term capital gains. And it's like, you know, do I want to sell now and pay a massive, you know, check to the government or do I want to just eat the 1.5%? I think a lot of people obviously have still chosen to, to remain in the fund. Can ETFs, change their expense ratio or their fee over time? And is there like risk that that will happen with the other new ETFs? Yeah, they can change their fee whenever they want. They could change their fee tomorrow. Really, they just file a document that says we're going to be changing our fee on X, Y, or Z. They can extend those fee waivers. So right now, most of them have fee waivers to 0% or BlackRock's is down to 0.12%. Um, so they all have different math and how to figure out what is actually being paid out of there. Um, but yeah, um, they can change whenever they want, really. Um, but it's really only going to go one day. No one's going to raise their fees, uh, I don't think. Um, aside from like once the fee waivers expire uh, or are no longer relevant, the fees will go back to what their stated fees are. Um, in the ETF world, when we saw these things launch, even before they launch, we saw years of fee wars compressed down into like a weekend, essentially. I mean, these are half the cost of what they thought they were going to be. I thought the low end was going to be 40 to 50 bips. And right now we have the long-term fee on Franklin's EZBC is the lowest at 19 bips. Many of them are at 20 and 25. Um, so yeah, I mean, this it, is a very, very good deal for most end retail investors to, to be able to hold these things like this. Yeah. Do you see a scenario where, you know, Bitcoin now trading at 40,000 or close to 50,000, Bitcoin goes up 10x, it becomes, you know, equivalent to gold and we're at $500,000, $600,000 per coin. Do you see a scenario where these ETFs end up being like, okay, I'm going to pull the GBTC playbook and jack up fees because I know that people won't be willing to eat the capital gains tax? No, that it's no, I don't think it. So I had a lot of people arguing me that GBTC wasn't going to work because Grayscale just wants to keep that cash cow. If they had done that, so look, think about the backlash they're getting from keeping the 1.5% fee. Could you imagine the backlash they would get if they kept the 2% fee and didn't open to, to redemptions? Like that's what would happen in the ETF world. Like if they raise their fee 
significantly. Like maybe, yeah, our costs have gone up. We might have to rise, raise fees. That happens from time to time uh, in different markets and usually in niche asset classes, which I would consider Bitcoin. So potentially if one of these funds has to like pay for more insurance, so like we have insurance now on the fund and we're, we're going to increase our fee, but you're also getting the fact that we have a, an insurance line with this agency for up to $10 billion in case we get hacked or something along those lines. This is obvious. This is completely theoretical. Like they might raise the fee, but we're not going to see somebody like BlackRock or Fidelity come in and like double their fee or triple their fee so they can make more revenue. That's not the way this works. That will kill their business. It will look so bad. It will look bad for their other products. It will look bad to advisors. They're like, you're just being greedy. Um, if anything, we'll see fee cuts in the coming years, not, not f rising fees. Interesting. How does, I'm curious, how does the Bitcoin ETF like compare to the gold ETF? I know people have talked about like the T plus one settlement or T plus two settlement. Does the gold ETF like GLD, is that work the same way? Like is physical gold settled daily? Yeah, for the most part. Um, basically, you're moving gold bars from one vault to another. Most of the gold ETFs have their gold stored in London. Um, there are other ETFs with it elsewhere. Like there, so I talked about this initially, like when I saw, thought people might differentiate, we're already seeing it. So Valkyrie is the only one that has multiple custodians right now. I've talked to investors that have significant capital that they are moving from GBTC or are leaving some in GBTC um, and have moved other capital to both IBIT and Fidelity's FBTC because they can diversify their custodian exposure. Um, so like one of the gold ETFs that has a couple billion dollars in assets is the only really differentiating factor is that it's stored in Swiss vaults rather than London vaults. There used to be one that was stored in Australia. In this frontier moment, James highlights a key insight about gold ETFs, focusing on one in particular that has its main value proposition as storing its gold in a secure Swiss vault, not in London or the US. It has over 2 billion AUM. While this may seem like it has protection against theft or loss, it fails to address the inherent risk of a single point of failure in its custody chain and protect against asset seizure by US authorities as the ETF itself operates under US regulations. This underscores a crucial vulnerability. Geographic location of the assets doesn't shield investors from domestic regulatory actions, such as government crackdowns, new taxes, or other unforeseen actions. This is one reason why it's important to hold the private keys to your own Bitcoin. Holding private keys empowers you with complete control over your wealth, free from layers of counterparty risk and false security, often associated with centralized financial products. There's one that has the gold stored in different places like US, Canada, London, Switzerland. Like so, so they'll diversify different things like that. So from that perspective, I think there is some similarities. Um, the one thing I would caveat with the gold ETF, which everyone's like, oh, look at this gold launch, and there was this massive run up. One, I mean, that was right before the great financial crisis. A uh, bunch of central banks started buying a ton of gold. So, I mean, I'm personally not of the opinion that central banks anytime soon are going to start buying Bitcoin, but I welcome being wrong. Um, the other side of it is like gold at that time when gold ETFs came out, like if you wanted gold, like you had to buy one of those coins on those infomercials, which you can still do today, right? Like that was the way you got gold. You went down to a pawn shop or a metal store and like bought gold physically and like stored it in your backyard or like under your house or something. Like there was just no easy way because for the most part, the way that people did it was they used futures. There was no spot exposure. So the Bitcoin ETF created that exposure for anyone, retail, institution, what have you, to trade, hold, 
long-term allocations to gold became possible because you didn't have to roll futures product, futures uh, contracts. In this frontier moment, we're comparing the gold ETFs to the newly approved Bitcoin ETFs. When GLD, the first gold ETF, launched on November 18th, 2004, it accumulated about $1.3 in assets under management, just in its first month. Fast forward to today, within about a month of their approval, the new Bitcoin ETFs, excluding GBTC, have captured an impressive $8.3 in AUM as of February 7th, 2024, which is more than seven times bigger. This is a pretty glaring difference, especially once you consider the logistical challenges around buying and storing gold without an ETF. You would think the gold flows may have been even higher as you couldn't easily buy gold from your computer like you already could with Bitcoin. So even despite the ease and cost effectiveness of storing Bitcoin digitally for free, something that you could do for years before Bitcoin ETFs, investors are piling into these new Bitcoin ETFs at a pretty quick pace. This trend not only emphasizes the demand for Bitcoin, but also hints that its role as digital gold is merely just the beginning of its potential market value. With the Bitcoin ETF, it's a little different. Like for the last eight years, if you wanted to buy Bitcoin, you just download an app on your phone, you got exposure to it. So it's not exactly the same. I Like I said, I think it really opens up the asset management world, the advisor world, which has tens of trillions of dollars, at least 30 trillion um, institutions. This, this makes it easier. So there's a lot of institutions that couldn't hold um, a commodity asset and putting it in ETF wrapper makes it a security. So all of a sudden, a bunch of people who couldn't technically hold this thing directly now can, if they want to, be the ETF. Advisors love ETFs. Like I said, I talked about putting this on traditional financial rail, becoming this wide bridge. Uh, we talk about being a gateway drug. But really, like if you're an advisor, it's just so much easier. It's like within the same ecosystem. There's plenty of platforms and products that were available to some advisors. If clients came to them and said, I want to hold Bitcoin, they could set things up with, like I said, Swan, OnRamp. I think that there was a bunch of, there's some other companies that did this stuff where I could set up a process to get exposure to spot Bitcoin, but it was this whole other process outside. There was more paperwork. I had to do all these other things. This is just like, I'm used to buying an ETF. I just click buy on my brokerage platform or with whatever I'm using. This is the same thing, right? So it just makes things way easier. And I think people who are saying no one, like they're downplaying the ETF, particularly like the Bitcoin maxis, like they're they're discounting how much efficiency and ease of use uh, really, like if you prepackage this thing and make it super simple where I just do something that I'm used to be do, used to doing already, it just makes it easier than like, I'm doc I don't want to open an account with Coinbase for my client uh, is really what it comes down to, which people are like, it takes two seconds. Why don't you just do it? And it's like, well, not really. There's a lot of compliance issues that go into there and it's out of their norm of how they practice. Yeah. Earlier, you brought up the point of like some people in the Bitcoin world were like concerned that ETFs would manipulate the price and do weird things. And you said you, you definitely disagree with that. Does that happen in the gold market or like, do you have an opinion on whether that happens? Well, we'll get into it's like, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. There are people out there like there. Obviously, there are big metal. There's banks. Tr there are trading desks that manipulate the market um, in some commodities. Uh we just, you don't need to look far to see different banks, JP Morgan unit. I don't, maybe not JP Morgan. I think JP Morgan, they've been sued for manipulation of different markets in different ways. Many banks have been. Um, but for the most part, it's not like, it's not the gold ETFs. The gold ETFs have the gold that they say they have. I mean, theoretically they could be getting scams if somebody's like putting gold on the outside and putting some sort of metal on the inside of the bar. But for the most, because obviously 
um, certification or what's what's it called when you make sure that it's actually what it says it is. But like that's a little bit harder when you have like a, a couple thousand gold bars like to figure out every single one. But for Bitcoin, that's not going to be a problem. These ETFs are going to hold spot Bitcoin. You can look at these different websites. They have sleuths, what they think are the addresses. They tie out with what we're seeing on the assets and the fund accounting side of things. Like the Bitcoin is there. So these ETF issuers, like when they have cash, so right now they're cash treat only. Usually an ETF, you can create shares by handing over the underlying assets. So like an S&P 500 ETF or a gold ETF, you're actually transporting the gold to them. And then in return, they're giving you the ETF shares that you could trade in the exchange. These Bitcoin ETFs, the SEC only allowed cash create redeem which means that only cash can go in and only cash can go out. But that means once the cash goes in, these ETF issuers do not want to sit on cash because if they're sitting on cash and Bitcoin goes on a run, then they're underperforming. Or even if they're sitting in cash and Bitcoin crashes and they had too much cash, all of a sudden they didn't track the price, the price of Bitcoin accurately. And if people are using this, like people will use these ETFs, they might go long spot or long futures and short the ETF or vice versa. If you're doing that and then it doesn't track properly, all of a sudden you have like a ding on your credit card. Because even if you outperformed, if you didn't track well, that's a bad look. So the end of the day, these ETF issuers want to track well and they want to hold all the Bitcoin that they have. There is not going to be any fuzzy business about with manipulation in my view. Obviously, I know there's people listening that like this guy is an idiot. He's He doesn't know how these banks work and these asset managers work, but you can see these things. And unlike the gold ETFs, we can actually see the addresses. You can go... Uh, Arkham has a great dashboard. Dune Analytics has a dashboard where they've sluiced these addresses. You can see on chain that this Bitcoin is held there. Right now, the only issuer I know that released the actual address with their Bitcoin was Bitwise. I think other ETF issuers are going to do the same. Um, so yeah, th these US spot Bitcoin ETFs, I anyone saying they're going to manipulate the market, I, I will discount that tremendously. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, last question, then we can probably wrap it up. Is there anything else around the ETFs that you think most people in the Bitcoin space just don't fully understand that maybe you haven't been able to talk about much? Not really. I feel like, well, I guess I'm so in the weeds that I get like questions from random Twitter accounts and DMs and on, on comments to my stuff that like everything has kind of been touched upon. But I guess if you're not following my feed on Twitter you, or my research that I'm writing, maybe you don't know. Um, but like all you need to know is that ETFs, are like you can think about them like a uh, a solar system essentially they're like almost like a snowball rolling downhill as they get volume as they get assets it helps them to get more volume and get more assets theoretically so and then when you add options to these things eventually which i think should happen this year you're you're just adding more and more to like these etfs they they can be used like a swiss army knife you can short them you can go long long term you can trade them tactically they're super efficient to trade you can use them to hedge, which is shorting really, but you can use them to, to hedge different things. You can hedge your positions with them. It's way easier to short. Most people like retail investors, they don't really have an easy way to short Bitcoin if they wanted to hedge their position for some reason. Um, I don't know why you would do that, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, but so like there, it just makes it super easy. And then you add options and it's like, it literally is a Swiss army knife. You can use these things to do whatever you want. So I guess the one caveat the one thing I thought most people were missing is like unlocking of GPTC is a net loss for Bitcoin short term. Long term, I think it's a very good thing. It's going to wash things out. It's going to get people cleared out of their positions that they're locked into. So short term, I think the GPTC unlocking, I think, was underrated. Uh, I was trying to hype up the fact that we were unlocking $30 billion of Bitcoin. Like this is not a net win automatically. Um, 
But even still, I think I uh, underestimated how much outflows were going to come out. And people were like, no one was talking about these outflows. I'm like, we were talking about these outflows that were coming for a long time. Uh, the other thing I would say is it's not just the US ETFs. We have ETFs in Canada. We have ETFs in Europe. We have some in Brazil from hashtags. Um, if you look, and then you have futures open interest, which are not exactly spot buying, but you, it, it is net buying or selling. So we've seen a huge drop in open interest in the CME Bitcoin futures market, uh, over a billion dollars in value. Um, we've seen over $500 million flow out of Canadian crypto ETFs and European e crypto ETFs. So it's not just a US ETF story. Right now, a lot of this has been money shifting back and forth from different types of exposure. We've seen sell-offs in Coinbase and, and MicroStrategy as well. There's likely some selling of people there to buy these ETFs. So a lot of the money so far that has come in is a lot of shifting of money around. Uh, how much, I don't exactly know. There is a lot of net new money as far as I'm concerned, though. Because even if you take out the people that left GBTC and didn't buy exposure, those bankruptcy estates, or everyone's like, oh, it's just money leaving GBTC and coming in and leaving these other products and coming in. That's not true because there is at least billions of dollars that came out of GBTC. We're over 6 billion outflows. We're uh, 6.3 has come out so far. One to 2 billion of that is cash. Like it did not come back into the space. FTX is not rebuying Bitcoin in some way to get exposure. So we're at a net inflow on these things of 2.2 billion since they launched the US ETFs. If you take out the futures open interest um, and some of the international ETFs, it's still net positive, not quite 2.2 billion. So I cover just the Cointucky Derby is what we call it, this race of these US spot Bitcoin ETFs, because that's what I'm interested. Um, but there's a lot of other things going on. And those are just the ones we can see. That's the tr TradFi overlap of what I, my expertise is for covering. There's still just like a small piece of this pie that is the entire trading of Bitcoin in general, right? So people are like, it flows into Bitcoin ETFs then the price of Bitcoin is going to go up. And it's like, no, because that's just one piece of what's happening. There are OTC trading desks. There are people at Gemini and Coinbase and you crack it, you name it, that are trading these things. That's what goes into the price. This is an entire ecosystem of supply and demand that dictates the price. So yes, net continued buying of Bitcoin ETFs is going to be net buying of spot Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that that's the only player in the market. So I guess that would be the one thing I would say. People keep trying to fixate on these flows and where money is going. And it's like, no one, like if you are talking about like ETFs and mutual funds in the traditional financial space, whether it be bonds or ETFs, no one's like ETFs every day take in money. They take in money every, pretty much every single day. And no one's like, oh my God, ETFs were taking in money, but the market crashed due to COVID. It's like, yeah, because ETFs were taking in money, but that doesn't mean that's what the whole market was doing. Supply and demand is what dictates price. Um, so the ETFs, yes, they're a piece of that pie, but they are not the entire pie. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else, um, but for the most part, that's 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 how I'm viewing this whole thing. I have strong views and opinions, um, which obviously differ from particularly like Bitcoin maxis like yourself <laughs> in some ways. I'm sure you didn't like me talking about the traditional portfolio of like an 80-20 or whatever, but um, that's the way these advisors, most of these people are going to view this asset class. Um, and like you said, it can be like a funnel or a gateway drug. Some of these people are going to get the get the get the bug and really go down into the weeds. And um, some of them will come away and looking to hold it in cold storage. But for the most part, this is, at the end of the day, this is a win for end retail investors. This is an efficient product. This is an efficient market. Um, and this is a win. This is a win for anyone that's looking to get Bitcoin exposure on the traditional financial worlds. Yeah, James, I mean, I thought this was great. Awesome conversation. Obviously great to hear your perspective. Um, where can people go find more about you and those research reports that also you, you talked about. Yeah, so my research is only available on the Bloomberg Terminal. 
So we don't have a, we're not allowed on the website. We're basically, uh, so if you have a Bloomberg terminal, you can see anything that I do or any of my colleagues. So I talked about what I do and the teams that I work on, but I also have colleagues in DC and Boston and other places that cover like market structure, like what's going on the underlying ends of trading. Um, I have a colleague who's a litigation analyst that we helped me come up with the call that Grayscale was going to win, which we made in February of 2022 and, or 2023 and got ridiculed for. Um, so I, I lean on him a lot when we're talking about this stuff. I'm looking at the Coinbase case with him. Um, so I have a lot of people within our department and that I can talk to. We have a, a regulatory analyst who covers like anything that's going on in Congress and the regulatory agencies. So he's really in the weeds on this stuff, particularly from that point of view. So a lot of my knowledge and research comes from like talking with my colleagues about like what is happening in the overall market. So Bloomberg Intelligence overall just has, we have, I don't even know what the number is, 300, 400 different analysts covering anything from single stock to equity markets in general, to credit markets. I talk about commodity, you name it. So I can lean on all these people um, to, to help basically form my views on what's happening with this market. That said, that's only available to people of a Bloomberg terminal, which is exorbitantly expensive. Um, so I do share a decent amount of my research and our data on my Twitter account on JSEYFF, JSafe. Um, so happy to share and interact with anyone there. That's probably where you're going to find me uh, most active and most interactive uh, with anyone looking to see what we're sharing. I can't share 100% of the things we do and I can't share all the data, but we, I think I do a decent job of sharing things that most people are interested in. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, since the approval, your Twitter account has done a great job covering the, the flows and the ETFs and all sorts of things. So James, this is awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Joe. This was fun.